Well, last week we finished up the book of Matthew. Praise the Lord. been going at it for about a couple of years now. And, you know, on and off. Little stops here and there, little breaks here and there. And if you remember, when we got halfway through Matthew, we um, did a review of the first half of Matthew, and that's where we're going to start today. We're going to start a review of Matthew, the second half of Matthew today. And so turn to Matthew 15. And uh, we're going to do review four chapters today, Matthew 15, 16, 17, and 18. And uh, this review will take this week, next week, and the week after that. It'll take three weeks for review. And then a the week after that, I'm going to give you a test. Okay? On the whole book. So you need to be reviewing your notes and looking it over. And, you know, if you have to go back and look at the videos, most of them are online. I think I'm up to, like, Matthew 26 online or something like that. So, And the rest of them should be up by the time we're done with this review. And uh, I'm not going to give you, like things I talked about just a tiny bit. I'm going to give you stuff I talked about a lot, so it should be stuff you remember pretty easily if you were paying attention if you've been here. Okay, but today we're going to restart reviewing Matthew 15, and it's going to be the same style as the last review, where I'm simply going to ask you some closed-ended questions, some open-ended questions, and uh, I expect you to respond, and anyone can respond. This is not, uh, this doesn't qualify in, in the realm of women teaching or being not being able to talk. This is something where you're just responding to questions I'm asking you. So you're allowed to respond, whether you're a young lady or an older lady, you're allowed to respond to these things, okay? All right, so we're going to start with Matthew 15, and the, the main theme of the first uh, teaching in Matthew 15. What is true legalism? We hear those, those, those accusations on the streets. If, if you say you have to obey Jesus, you're, you're a legalist, you're a Pharisee. But, but what is the true definition of a legalist? And we, we talked about Matthew 15. Give me what you think the definition is. Go ahead, Tracy. Well, I'm thinking you can uh, be justified by your own deeds. Okay. You actually earn salvation by what you actually do yourself, not by uh, what Christ did. So okay. Okay. That might qualify. That's not what we talked about when we did it. Yes, brother? So, teaching uh, the commandments of man and the commandments of God, so we see the Jews had the, uh, the expansions on the law, uh, mm-hmm. the Mishnah, and the, you know, all the expansions mm-hmm. upon the law and all the interpretations of the lawyers, which had said, well, you know, yes, God commands this, but there's subsection A and B and C, and this is what these words mean, and, you know, redefine the words and all these kind of things and package them up for people, and then people began to worship those things and teach those things as the original word of God, even though those things That's right. Right. So, so legalism is not. I mean, obviously, Brother Tracy, what you're talking about would be wrong as well. Trying to think you can earn your salvation or work your way to to, to the kingdom of God or work for forgiveness that would all be wrong as well. But legalism is defined as setting up a law for yourself that's not from God, and striving to keep that in order to enter the kingdom of God. Okay. So, so it's it's someone who's as Brother Frank said. It says it right here. At the end of verse 9, Matthew 59, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Okay? So a legalist is not someone who follows God's law or strives to obey God's law. They set up their own law and they command others to obey that law as if it were God's law. Okay? And that's what the Pharisees said the main problem they had was there is that they were, they were legalists. And as you see in Matthew 15, 1 through 5, that they were we're condemning the disciples for not following one of their traditions, one of their laws, which is not found in the Word of God. But then they themselves were not obeying God's Word. They're hypocrites. Okay? 
So we know with legalism now. Uh, what what are preferences or doubtful things? Someone tell me what that is. Question. One example of it. Okay. All right. Not be a sin to somebody else, but they might be a sin to me. That's right. Like mm-hmm. if, I, if I think it's sinful So, so preferences or doubtful things, Romans 14, we talked about, the reason I bring it up now is we talked about this during this teaching, uh, the first part of Matthew 15, went to Romans 14, talked about that and how we're not to judge people on doubtful things or preferences. These are things that, they, as Brother John said, that you would be considered a sin for yourself because God has spoke to your heart said, don't do these things. But also, another doubtful thing would be, well, I have this standard for my family. You're not saying it's necessarily a sinful thing for your family, but I have a standard for me or my family that I'm going to set up as a boundary Maybe so that we don't sin, not because I necessarily think it's a sin, but so we won't go that direction of sinning, and I'm trying to impose it upon someone else. Okay, that's a doubtful thing, and that would be, be that would qualify you if you did that as a legalist, because now you're saying it's a sin for someone, and really God hasn't called it a sin for them. Okay, um, are there biblical and good traditions, and are there unbiblical ones? Yes. yes. Can you point me to any verses in the Bible that talk about good or Use that word tradition in a good sense. Okay. Okay. We might know them all, though. We might know them all through the Word of God. We do know that Paul talks about it. I think in, um, I think it's in First or Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse fifteen, and also chapter three and verse six. And we also see in First Corinthians eleven where Paul's talking about head coverings. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that talked about there and so um there are some traditions and and the apostle paul says whether by word or by letter and second thessalonians but he's writing to only one church there so i mean i'm assuming we have all the traditions god wants us to keep we have them all in the word of god maybe in that letter to the thessalonians the second letter maybe they might have all been in that letter but i think we have all the ones that god expects us to obey surely otherwise he's leaving us in ignorance for for no good reason yes Yeah, I think I think that would fall more under a command. A tradition is something that uh, um, that the apostles have commanded them to keep. Um, like, for example, the, the Bible in the Old Testament and Jesus never said anything about head coverings. We know from the Apostle Paul that it's something they were supposed to be doing. As, as women, they're supposed to be doing when they're praying or they're prophesying. We know that. And that's actually a tradition. It's what he calls it in there. And that if someone doesn't keep that, in fact, we can just look at it real quick. I'd, so chop it up, First Corinthians 11, to see exactly what he said there. I'm not going to get into head coverage right now, but we'll get into tradition issue here. Um, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 2, it says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. 
And then you go down to verse 16. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And so talking about traditions, the churches of God don't aren't contentious about keeping the traditions that he gave to them. And then you see, let's go to 2 Thessalonians. You can see what it says there. Chapter 2 and verse 15. 2 Thessalonians? Thessalonians. Chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, Therefore, brethren, <clears throat> stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Okay? And then we see in chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Okay, so we see this such thing as good. And of course, in Matthew 15, the whole reason why this was brought up during this teaching was that Jesus says that you're teaching traditions. The, the, uh, the doctrines of, uh, traditions of men. It says, um, let's see here. In verse 3, it says, Why do you also transgress the command of God? Because of your tradition. See, there's a difference here. Okay? And so there's that such thing as good traditions and biblical ones and unbiblical traditions. So when all the unbiblical ones uh, are taught, what do they do to the word of God when they're treated as if they're absolute truth? They make it null and void. They, uh, it says in verse... Uh, Six, it says, thus you have made the commandment of God, end of verse six, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Because it was contradicting the word of God. And so when you teach something as if it is the word of God, it actually isn't, it harms the actual word of God's effect in that person's life. Because they're believing what you're saying as if it is the word of God when it really isn't. And this happens all throughout Christendom. Okay, We say this all the time. Uh, things that are taught that really aren't the Word of God, if they are the Word of God. Uh, does what goes in a mouth defile a man? What he eats, does that defile a man? No, it does not. What does defile a man? Why does that defile a man? Shows his heart. Right. So he's, he show, he's revealing the state of his heart. Now, this state of his heart we're talking about here in verse 18 and 19 of Matthew 15 is this an involuntary state you're born with or you're coming to without your will involved? No, this is the free will's involved here. And so it's simply revealing the state of your heart. Um, was Jesus concerned with offending the Pharisees? No, he was not. And he called them blind leaders that are blind. And where are the blind lead the blind into? That's right. That's right. They've got to have their eyes opened. Uh, what was Jesus impressed with concerning the Canaanite woman found in Matthew fifteen twenty one through twenty eight? What was he impressed with? Her faith. Yes, he is impressed with her faith. Now, now, how does she how does she display her faith? In what way? Humbling herself. But not being dissuaded by you know, part of the humility. She wasn't being dissuaded by by all the testing that Jesus was putting. He even called her a little lap dog. So she persevered. She persevered with she Jesus. She heart in a different way than the Pharisees did, quite the opposite. Opposite way, that's right. That's right. While they tried to reject all knowledge they got from Jesus, she, she was pressing in. Could you imagine in Matthew 23 when Jesus was going through his his his, th- his thrashing of the Pharisees, calling them whitewashed tombs, calling them hypocrites probably ten times. And Can you imagine one of them was saying, crying out like she did? 
after he said those things to her and say, I want to, I want to know you, I want you, and, and cried out. And we looked in this passage in, in Matthew uh, 15, 23, the word for cries out there, I mean, she screamed, she shrieked, she cried with a loud voice. It was the same word used for people who were demon-possessed when they shrieked, and people who were in labor when they were giving birth, or uh, Stephen's murderers who were, murdered him in the book of Acts. The same kind of screaming we see in those passages we see here. She's crying, and, that, and that's why they said, um, Lord, send her away. You know, don't don't let her bother us any longer in verse 23. But she cried out. She wasn't ashamed to cry out, to, to put her, her, her desperation on display. She was full of faith. She was fervent. Uh, she showed complete reliance, humility. And it wasn't a matter of eloquent words with her. It was very short. Help me! She cried out. That's what, that's what God's looking for. He's like, if you're in the midst of a situation where you're desperate, you need his help, just cry out to him. He hears the words of those people who cry out like that. He hears the words of those people. You know, so we ought, to, we ought to take her example. Jesus was impressed with that. He wasn't impressed with the Pharisees. Lots of knowledge. They probably were very, very eloquent in their public prayers where they would you know, make a lot of noise and make sure everyone knew they were about to pray. They, they, but she just cried out to him in humility. A Canaanite woman. They did not know the law of God like the Pharisees did, like the back of their hand. Okay? So that's the manner she cried out to them. Okay, and see what you see in, uh, in verses 32 through 39 that Jesus fed the 4,000 men plus women and children. Do you suppose that Jesus, when he was preaching to them, do you suppose he was whispering when he was preaching to them? 4,000 men. I mean, if, if we just assume there was maybe uh, one woman or child per man, there's 8,000 people there. Uh, there's no buildings to bounce his voice off of, no half-mile hailer, um, you know, no bullhorn that even doesn't, isn't, isn't electronic, just a regular bullhorn. Didn't have any, and they didn't have hearing aids back then. So, you know, Jesus was, you know, he's speaking loudly to these people. He may even look red-faced, may even have his veins popping out of his head. I don't, I don't really know, but he surely was not whispering to these people. So when, anytime someone tells you what, you know, why, why are you being so loud and you're preaching open air? Why, why are you screaming? Why, you know, Jesus would never scream. Well, bring up this passage. Well, what do you think he was doing to 8,000 people here? Do you think he was whispering to them? Yeah. Right. Right. Much less Now the crowd was favorable towards him. He probably didn't have hecklers like we do. Uh, they, they didn't have boom boxes trying to drown you out. They didn't have their instruments, and uh, they weren't dancing around a circle singing. But but still, eight thousand people is a large group to reach uh, with with one voice, with none of these instruments we're talking about. And so we see, so we see the feeding there, and we see that they they brought him seven um, loaves of bread and a few little fish, and he was able to feed that many people. And uh, just to bring that 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 the seven loaves of bread and those little fish to him took a step of faith. And, and what what I get from that is is when I bring Jesus my little bit, he can turn it into a lot. When I bring him the little bit I have, he can make a lot of it, more than I could ever imagine to make of it myself. I try to do it in my own strength. So he, he can take a little and make a lot out of it. Okay, let's go to Matthew 16. Explain the sign of Jonah to me. Someone explain that to me. What does that mean? 
That's right. So it's so we see in Jonah, <clears throat> we see a symbolic representation of Jesus Christ. So God took Jonah's disobedience and made a picture of it. I mean, God could have chastised Jonah in many different ways. But God took Jonah's disobedience and made a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. In that, in, in that, what happened in, in the Old Testament. So God can take people's disobedience and make something good out of it. And give a picture, a foreshadowing of what is to come. We see this in the situation with, with Egypt too. You know, he used Pharaoh's disobedience to bring about the tenth plague, which instituted the Passover, which is symbolic of Christ, the Passover lamb. And we just sang about that a second ago. The blood over the doorpost. He sees the blood, he will pass over me. And so God used disobedience of people to foreshadow things he's going to do in the future. Okay, so the sign of Jonah is, is like Brother Vaughn said, about the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Also, that, that passage about uh, him being in the belly of the earth kind of supports our view of uh, Hades mm-hmm. and where people go in the belly of the earth, down, mm-hmm. wherever they are on the planet, they go down uh, into that place until uh, resurrection. Amen. Amen. And the Bible does say he went to Hades. And so, obviously, we, we know Hades is different than, than Gehenna. It's, a, it's, it's the same as Sheol from the Old Testament. Um, okay, so we see Jesus, the representation there in that. This is a little side note here. John, we brought up again, maybe remember this. It's a little tidbit fact that I learned from playing the American Bible game show on the, on the thing, on the Facebook, is that he had seaweed on himself while he was in the belly. It says it right there in, in Jonah, that he had seaweed on himself. So, it's just, it's funny to, to be to think about yourself in the belly of a of a great fish having seaweed on yourself while you're in his stomach. You know, it just seems kind of weird. So I I, I never caught that before until I, I had to answer that question on on the game. I think I got it wrong the first time. Okay, um, <clears throat> when Jesus um, gave that he said as the only sign he was going to give this wicked and perverse generation. When he gave this wicked and perverse generation that sign. You should know the answer because we've just been talking about this. What was their response to that sign? They hardened their hearts. And what did they try to do to about it? When they, when they found out he had been resurrected, what did they try to do? They, they tried to cover it up. They gave out some money and they tried to cover it up. And we saw that the soldiers themselves were willing to risk their own lives for that large sum of money that was given to them just to cover these things up, just to help them cover it up. Even though they knew, they saw with their own eyes, this was a miraculous sign. They weren't depending upon someone else's testimony about this and willing to cut. Their own testimony, their own eyes saw the stone roll away, the angels sit upon the tomb. They knew it was real. And they were willing to sell it off for some money. Okay. Um, so we know that even when there's miraculous uh, signs, even when uh, people receive truth in a supernatural way, they still have the ability to reject it. There's no guarantee they can still reject. So we, we, we take we take heart in that. We take edification then that when we're preaching on the streets, when we're, we're going from place to place sharing with people, no matter how good a preacher we are, no matter how eloquently we share the truth, no matter how clearly we share the truth, people can still reject. And so when we walk away off the street and we see no, maybe we see very little fruit, we see no fruit, we don't get discouraged because we know God's word is doing what it's meant to do. And they have a free will choice. And even if no one got saved, Ever in ministry, even when eternity reveals the results and no one got saved, we still were faithful to God. That's what matters in the end. What was the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? 
And we went to Luke 12 to figure that out. The doctrine, okay. And what was the specific doctrine that I told you from Luke 12? Was it? It was their doctrine of hypocrisy. That was eleven of the Pharisees. So, so their doctrine, main eleven that we're talking about. You go to Luke twelve; it talks about this. I know right here in in, uh, in Matthew fifteen and verse twelve, it says the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And that doctrine, that eleven we're talking about, is that is a hypocrisy that they weren't willing to do the very things they were commanding others to do. The thing they said you shouldn't be doing this, they weren't they weren't obeying that themselves. That was their main leaven. Might this apply also to the fact that they were teaching as commandments, as doctrine the commandments of men as well? Yeah, I, I think that would apply as well. Uh, obviously, they're hypocrites, and, and I wonder if they're washing these things that they're doing. I wonder if they're washing their hands as well every single time. Mm-hmm. You know, if they really think it's the same, why are they doing it every time? Like you said, you put burdens on men, so you don't lift the finger. Mm-hmm. That's right. Don't lift the finger. You know, you travel over land and sea to make a convert, making twice the son of hell that you are. Yeah, because if you're a hypocrite and you're, the people who you're discipling see you're a hypocrite, what are they going to become? They're going to follow in your footsteps and become a hypocrite as well. You know, just like when we're leading our families, our families, our children become what we are, not what we tell them to become. That's usually what happens, because they will follow your example before they follow your words. And you'll see it. You'll see it. You'll see the good and the bad. And that's why we all, this one, there's another reason we don't weed that stuff out. Okay. Who revealed to Peter and the other apostles who Jesus was? Yeah. God the Father says, revealed to him. God revealed to him, uh, revealed to them what Jesus, who Jesus was and what he was. Um, who is the rock, or what is the rock that the church shall be built upon? Chief Cornerstone, okay. And who's that? Okay. Now, in this in this situation right here, Jesus is speaking of a little something a little bit different here. He says, "On this rock," and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against us. Verse fifteen. Okay. So the rock he's talking about something that Peter just said in verse sixteen. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. So that confession. That confession is what the church shall be built upon. Okay, and when the, it says the gate of Hades shall not prevail against, now it doesn't say the gate of hell. I know it might say it in King James version, but it's the word Hades there in the Greek. What does that mean? Death. That death, death will not. Does it mean that that the powers of hell will not prevail against the church? Is that what it means? I mean, we probably most of us have been taught that, but the powers of hell. Think about it a second. Who who is is Satan the one who's ruling over hell? Is he in authority over it? No, he's not even there yet. And, and so, and who, who's in who's in authority over hell? God. God is. That's a part of his kingdom, part of his sphere of rulership, uh, which is nothing's outside of his rulership. Everything's in his sphere of what he rules over. And so, when it says the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church, what is it saying? In other words, yeah. death will not will not uh, have, take a foothold and not prevail against the church. And why is that? Okay, so he's given us victory over the, okay, so. Always be a remnant. Always be a remnant. Okay. Well, we're focusing more on the death thing here. Now, why won't death prevail, Brother John? Sin. Sin? Okay. Resurrection. Resurrection. 
death has lost its sting. And so, so as, as saints of God, we don't fear death anymore. It's lost its sting. We know it's not the end for us. We know we will be resurrected in the end. We know because of those things, it cannot prevail against us. The only way it can prevail against you is if you give in to fear and you love your own life more than you love God. And if you love your life and want to preserve it, what, what will happen to your life? You will lose it, the Bible says. So we must despise our life and give it up for God and not preserve it. Just give it up for God. So was Peter the first uh, pope of the church? Really? Why not? Never a bishop. Never a bishop. Okay. Well, he he was a bishop in the sense. I mean, he talks about this in First Peter. He says, "I am a bishop too. I am an overseer. I'm an elder. I'm your fellow elder, fellow overseer, fellow bishop." So he does say that. But as far as being a bishop of one specific local church, that is true. What specific church was he never a bishop over though? Rome. And that's where the the seat of the pope is now. Does anyone remember uh, what century the 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 word when the word pope was first used? Close. Nope. Sixth century was the first time the word pope was used. It used papa, the Latin word papa, which means pope in, in English. Uh, it just means father, really. It means pope of popes or bishop of bishops. Uh, so that was first used about the bishop of Rome in the sixth century. Many centuries after uh, Peter had died. Who was it used of? I can't remember the name of the person it was used about. That might be right. That might be right. Uh, he was he was around about that time. But it was around there. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we see all throughout church history, bishops from different churches talking to each other, counseling each other, seeking advice from each other. But you never see one ruling over the rest of the church. Is Peter ever in the Bible declared the leader of the whole church? Does he ever... Uh, work in that capacity. What's some examples you give that go against that idea? Well, uh, the council, I think, uh, was it Paul that sharply rebuked Peter? That was in Galatians. That was on the council, but that's when Paul, I mean, uh, Paul and Peter and Barnabas were visited, were in, in, in Galatia, and then people from, from the Jews came, and that's when he rebuked them for being a hypocrite. And Barnabas even was led astray, it says. At that point, that is a good example. What's another, so, so Paul is rebuking the Pope. Uh, when would you see that in Roman Catholicism today? That an archbishop or a bishop would rebuke the Pope. He'd be in big trouble. What's another example you can give of a go against this idea of Peter being the first Pope? The little thing also that Paul said, I mean, it's just a small thing, but when Paul came uh, to visit the church and he said, uh, you know, speaking of Peter and the other prominent apostles, they seemed to be pillars. So to me, that almost speaks to the fact that the Peter was humble. He was amongst them. Right. You know, because Paul, they, they seemed to be. So it's not like he was there with some vestments and standing up on top. And, you know, right. Paul's like, wow, yeah, he was the man, you know. Right. They, he seemed to be a pillar. So right. That's he was good. distinguishing himself amongst the others, the elders, by his service and, and by the fact of the things that he did, which mm-hmm. were biblical, commanded by the Lord, rather than by having a title or vestments. Right. And that fits, of course, with what uh, Jesus said, call no man father. Yes. That's good. That's good. All good stuff. Anything else? That's right. Now, who was the who was the main leader there? Yeah, the half brother of Jesus. Yeah, and so he was actually the first bishop of Jerusalem. Yeah. So, and he's the one who made the decision about what was going to happen to the Gentiles situation. So we don't see Peter. We, we, Peter doesn't even have authority in that council. 
supreme authority. So why would he have supreme authority over the whole church as a whole? Who was the first person to make it to Rome as an apostle? Paul. That's right. Paul was the first one to make it there. And so he he writes to Rome, and he we talked about this. He writes to Rome, and he says, I don't want to build a name else's foundation. He said he wanted to have some fruit among them. Yeah, so we see that in, in the book of Romans. Okay, so he was in the first part. We have some pretty good information about that. <clears throat> what did uh, Jesus call Peter when Peter rebuked Jesus concerning his death? He called him Satan. Imagine being called Satan. I mean, the Pope was called Satan. The first Pope was called Satan by God. It was even worse than uh, what he called Judas. Yeah. He called Judas the devil, but he called, uh, called Peter Satan. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. Also, conceptually, a big subversion of the ministry of Christ when yeah. they talk about this, because the Bible clearly says there's no mediator between God and man but the name Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and in Hebrews, it speaks of the priest of Jesus Christ, who, who is forever to make intercessions for the saints. Right. Yes, yes, yeah. There's lots of horrible things about the Roman Catholic Church. There really are. Okay, what does it mean, in your words, to take up your cross? What does it mean to do that? Die to yourself. Die to yourself. Okay. It's a Roman execution device. Okay, so you're dying to yourself. Okay, what does dying to yourself mean? Okay, what does that mean? Okay. Can you give me some specific example of that? Like, say, if you wanted to uh, uh, have sex outside of marriage, mm-hmm. uh, instead of waiting until you get married, or uh, say if you're you like a particular type of food and you just want to keep eating and eating and eating and eating and eating, and eating, and eating and you just keep on going, that can be that can become gluttony very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, uh, just satisfying your desires any way that you can, without any regard of what God wants for you. That's right. What about your future? Your, your, what you want to do with your life? Giving up your agenda and your plans for your own life. Your dreams, your, you know, people have to, we talk to college students all the time, we have to tell them, listen, you know, why, why did you come here? Did you come here because of what you want to do? Or because God told you to come here? If God spoke to your heart and led you to come here to get a degree in this field. You know, why, why are you here? Why are you in the occupation you're in? Is because God led you to it, or because you desired to do it, because you wanted to do it, because you wanted to make a good paycheck, because you wanted prestige, because you wanted popularity. What is it? You know, so taking up your cross encompasses all those things. Brother Trace said it's a death to you, and uh, we know that when we become Christ, become one with Christ, we die to ourselves and we walk in newness of life. All the old things have passed away. Behold, all has become new. All right. Um, if you try to preserve your life here on earth, what will happen? You will lose it. That's right. You will lose it. And he, he goes and talking and he says, you can exchange things for your soul. And, and your soul should be so precious to you that even if it was possible to gain the whole world, you should not give it up. And let's face it, we've thought before, you can't gain the whole world. You can't. But even if you could, Jesus is trying. God is trying to give you what the value of your soul should be to yourself. I mean, God valued enough to send his son to die for you. So obviously there's some, some infinite value there. And if he did that, then you should do that as well. You should value your own soul to the point where you won't give it up for sin or for anything. For anything. Okay. 
That's right. Yeah, as, as the old Moravian uh, missionary cry was, may the lamb who is slain receive the reward of his suffering. And the reward of his suffering is your complete life, your unconditional surrender, giving him all. Anything less is not giving him what he deserves for his sacrifice. So, Okay, Matthew 17. And we saw here in the transfiguration of the mount, we saw uh, at the end of verse 16, last verse, as I surely say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So we've seen how people try to use this to promote uh, false views of eschatology, that Jesus came in his kingdom in AD 70, um, that maybe this is talking about Revelation and John's writing of that, but it says some standing here and not one standing here. So we know that couldn't work. So so what is it? What is verse 28, the last verse of verse six, chapter 16, what is it referring to? That's right, the transfiguration on the mountain. And we saw that what we see here, his face shone like the sun in verse 2, his clothes became as white as light. That That's a, the same kind of description we see of Jesus when he comes in his kingdom. Okay, so what we see here is the three apostles, James, Peter, and John, they are able to see, get a taste of what it will be like when Jesus comes in his kingdom. Who else is up there with them? And what might that be a foreshadowing of? The two witnesses? Two witnesses, that's right. That's right. Now we do know that Elijah is one of the witnesses, right? Now where is that found? What did you say? Yeah, John said Malachi first. It's Malachi chapter 4. We see that in the very last parts of Malachi here, the very last part of the book of Malachi, we see it talking about Elijah coming before Jesus returns. Okay, so that could possibly be a foreshadow. Now, it says in verse 3, it says they were talking with him. What were they talking about? Okay. Where would you get that information from? Okay. Well, turn to Luke 9.31 for a second. And he tells us what we're talk- what they're talking about. Uh, actually, uh, Luke 9.30... And 31. It says in verse 30, And behold, two men talked with him, well, Jesus here, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which departure or death, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So what is he talking about? His death. What John just told us he talked about. Uh, that's a good recall there, brother. <laughs> so he's talking about his death because, uh, you know, they had they had the foreshadowings of his death in the Old Testament, the pictures of his death, but they didn't have the full revelation of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so he had to declare it to them, possibly, as Brother Vaughn said, because they were possibly going to be the two witnesses, and they have to proclaim those things. They have to proclaim those things to Israel so that they may turn back to God, may turn back to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so we see what they were talking about up there. And they might have talked about other things as well, but we also see that the idea of soul sleep is what? Thrown out the window. Unless, of course, the Moses line were just woken up for a little while from their nap and they went back to sleep afterwards. And we do see that the, that the soul does live on afterwards, doesn't it? Lives on after the grave. Okay? 
And this is hundreds of years after these guys died. You know, for Moses, a couple, at least a couple thousand. Yes, brother. Good question. I can't imagine why I wouldn't be able to understand it. Uh, I, maybe it'll be like the day of Pentecost, something like that, where we'll hear it in our own language. Or, uh, but for sure, the Israelite people will definitely be able to understand what they're saying, uh, because that's the whole point of them coming, is to turn them. You look at Mal- Malachi four; it talks about it, turn them back to God. Um, so that's a good question. We'll still have to wait and see. I couldn't imagine either. Good point. Good point. Right. Yeah. I I I truly do think my brother John said that they're going to hear and understand what they're saying, but I, I don't know exactly how yet. Bubba doesn't tell us that, but I couldn't imagine he would send these two men and, and most of the world might be able to understand what they're saying so whether something like the day of Pentecost or some kind of translation going on or TVs are working and they're all able to hear it I don't, I don't really know at this point but hopefully we'll be around to see it I mean it'd be interesting to see <laughs> it'd be interesting to see yeah same way ours are yeah yeah okay was uh, was John the Baptist literally Elijah Spirit and power of Elijah. Okay, and we know that when he was asked if he was Elijah, he said no. He said, "I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. You know, make straight the the, the way to the Lord." Um. Okay, when will Elijah return? We just talked about this. When will he return? Beginning of seven years. Beginning of seven years. That's right. So, he, how and how long is he going to prophesy for? Three and, Three and a half years for the first half. And then he'll be uh, he'll be killed, and as we just talked about, people will give gifts and basically make a holiday out of their death. That's right, and then he'll be resurrected three and a half days later. Yeah. Right, right. The bodies will just be led there, left there. They won't be buried or anything; just be left there. But then they'll resurrect from the grave, and even then, people will reject, and they'll take the mark of the beast anyway. Is uh, faith enough? To drive out every demon. Ah, there we go. Yeah, it's very good, sister. Faith is not enough. Fasting and prayer. Yeah, that's what Jesus said. He 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 rebukes them for their lack of faith, and then he says in verse twenty one of Matthew seventeen, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And so it's a good principle to learn here that if you're gonna go into an area to preach or witness or whatever it may be, in that area you know has lots of demonic activity there. You're going to want to be praying and fasting a lot beforehand to be prepared to deal with whatever you run into. Otherwise, you may run into a demon who you cannot drive out because you have not fasted about it. Yes? Now, is this activity the request commanded then in a pack of them or is it mostly for you? Well, I think it's probably for both because he did talk to him about fasting earlier in, in Matthew. And it's not a matter of if you fast, but of when you fast. So maybe it was a rebuke to them of their lack of fasting. That they weren't fasting enough as they should have been, and uh, you know that's we should really take that in consideration because we should be fasting regularly. Uh, it shouldn't be, and obviously there can be situations that are going to prevent that, like if for women when they're pregnant and 
nursing and that kind of stuff. And uh, maybe men, if they're doing a lot of physical hard labor, they shouldn't be fasting too often. But, but even if it's just like just fasting a meal or just fasting uh, something you normally would be doing that's not exactly focusing on a God and taking that time to spend with him. You know, you don't, I mean, in the book of Daniel, it said he fasted from choice food. They say he fasted from food altogether in one of his fasts. And so uh, it's, a matter, it's a matter of giving something up to the God, making a sacrifice to him, and using that time or whatever you were going to use to normally something else, or using it for him and spending time with him and allowing him to feed you spiritually. As Matthew uh, 4 forces, man cannot live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so you're feeding yourself. Denying your fat, your flesh, and you're feeding your your soul. You're feeding your spirit, so God can can grow you in that sense. Mm-hmm. So yes, we should we should take into account, and I think they should they should take into account too when they were, when Jesus spoke this to them. <clears throat> Why was Jesus free from the temple tax burden? Why was he free from that? I mean, he did pay it, but why was he free from it? Uh, I had to reread re- re- this number too. It's just because uh, the kings of the earth take taxes from strangers, and he's not a stranger, he's a son, and sons are free. Whose house is it? It is his house. It's his father's yeah. house. He don't have to pay taxes at his father's house. Strangers pay, pay taxes. The people who live there don't pay taxes. The people who own the place don't pay taxes. Right? Okay, so that's why it's his father's house. Um, now, when when he did. Get the money. And what what means did he use to get the the money to pay for Peter and himself? Pulled out of his mouth. Now, now we know Jesus had a treasurer, right? What was his name? Okay, so he had money. He could have paid, could have taken it out of the bag and, and given it to Peter. Said, "Peter, go go pay for the temple tax for you and me." Now, why why do you think he would have done it this way? Help whose faith? Because Peter probably would have been the only one who would have known about it. I mean, we don't know of anyone else going with him to go and do that. So maybe it was to strengthen Peter's faith. That, that, that Jesus can provide in natural ways and in supernatural ways. And whatever he commands you to do, even if it seems funny, even if it seems weird, even if people are going to look at you like, man, what are you thinking? You need to obey him. And what will happen in is it will strengthen your faith. You'll see something supernatural happen, and he will work in your life. And and if other people did find out about what happened, it surely would have strengthened their faith too. I mean, think about everything that had to happen in the process of that, how the right fish had to come to the hook at the right time with the right amount of money in it, the exact amount that was needed for it to pay two people's temple tax. That's That, that tells you that Jesus is sovereign over the animals and over all the earth. Yes? Uh, now, in this, we have to insert, of course, that when you say maybe something weird, mm-hmm. as far as we're concerned, since yeah. we are not Jesus, we are his disciples, we sure. are his way, so we still must test, uh, or yes. we must be tested, rather, when something supernatural does happen, that it yes. is uh, of God. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, Thank you. So the weirdness must be tested still, right? Of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Uh, and when, when I when I say weird, I really meant weird in the eyes of others and how you're concerned what others are going to think about what you're doing. And, you don't see the outcome. You don't see the outcome of it. Things that I mean, here in North America, we're not so accustomed to that, but in this world, people are in touch 
with the supernatural mm-hmm. on the on the devil's sure. spectrum end of things, and uh, I mean, they do powerful things, and if we yeah. be swayed by that, then something. Yes. That's a good. That's a good check there. Yeah, we definitely need to check everything against the Word of God and be Bereans about it. When I say weird, I don't mean outside of what God would do, and what. Unaccustomed. By it. Yes, Un- unaccustomed to, you know, the world around you. Of course, I think we're weird anyway. But uh, the world around what they would think, because you know, oft- oftentimes that will come up. If God tells you to go somewhere and do something, one of the first temptations that comes to your mind is, what are people going to think? You know, what not just unsaved people, what are saved people going to think mm-hmm. that I do this? Um, and so it doesn't mean that we're not checking it, it doesn't mean we're not testing it, it doesn't mean we're seeking God the counsel, it doesn't mean we're praying about it to make sure it's God's will or not. Mm-hmm. But if you know something is God's will, and obviously he knew because Jesus was speaking to him, yeah. um, but if you know something is God's will, you need to do it. That's all there is to it. You need to do it if you have a great assurance that it is his will. Okay, let's go to Matthew 18. Why is using a child as the example contrary to Calvinism's view on children? Because Calvinism teaches that uh, people are sinners from birth. So there'd be no uh, period of uh, purity, uh, no period of innocence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're automatically guilty from birth. Yes. So you're born a child of wrath. Right. Totally depraved. You know, so if that's true, then why would you just ever use a child as the example of what you should be like? That the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That if you don't become like this child, you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Why would he do that? If they are children of wrath, if they're wicked and depraved, if they're totally depraved. <clears throat> so what must you become like in order to enter the kingdom of God? I just, just said it. Let's become a child. What does that mean? Okay, innocent, pure. What's some of the characteristics you see of a child? Trusting. Trusting. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. What about their constitution, how small they are? They're small. They, they're looking up. They're constantly looking up. They're defenseless. They're helpless, right? Yeah, they, they depend upon... They're always dependent upon somebody or something um, for protection. Uh, they're humble, of course. Go, Frank? So, regarding what Sister said about uh, being um, trusting, mm-hmm. it almost makes you think of when Adam was at that critical point where he could have sinned, mm-hmm. or he could have trusted his father who had already shown him so many great things Right. Yes. Yeah, that's right. The way it should be, and they're teachable too. Mm-hmm. You know, they they come just teach me. They they, they don't have a blank slate basically, mm-hmm. and you'd be taught. What would you be better off doing instead of causing a child who believes in Jesus to sin? Yep. 
And we talked about this millstone. Do you remember what we talked about in this millstone? There's two different kinds of millstones. And there's ones that we can, you can do by hand, right? We looked at the Greek word here, mulos. Yeah, that's what it means. That's a millstone. And there's ones that animals turn. And they're four or five feet across in diameter and about that thick. And I, I couldn't find the weight of them, but we know. And actually in this, in this, uh, in the Greek right here in, in verse six, it actually has the word for donkey there and the word for millstone. It's no, it, I don't know why they didn't translate donkey, but it would have actually been donkey millstone or millstone donkey. And so we know that it was one of the bigger ones. It wasn't one of the smaller ones. And so if you have something around your neck that's that heavy and you're thrown into a sea, are you getting back out? No. Right, right. And, and I'll tell you, I, you know, I've never come close myself, but I, I've, I've, I've heard about this, that, that drowning and almost drowning is one of the most excruciating things that can happen to you when, when you're dying. And so... And Jesus says it's, it's better that that happened to you than causing one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Um, what does Jesus recommend doing with your hand, foot, or eye if you are sinning with them? Does he mean that literally? No, what what literary function is being used there? Hyperbole. That's right. Hyperbole is being used there, and so so when we when we look at the Bible, we we know that you know we hear this in the open air. You're going to hear this if you go out in the open air. Do you take the Bible literally? Well, yeah, most times. That's usually how I reply. <laughs> usually, most they they kind of might get a little perturbed about that, but that's okay. Um, yeah, most times it's literal, but there's also literary functions in there, like hyperbole. There's metaphors, there's symbolic language, there's poetic language in it, and so. You know, when we're interpreting the Bible properly, uh, we must make sure what kind of literature, what we're dealing with here. You know, obviously, Jesus is not talking about literally cutting off the foot or plucking out the eye. Now, this, he's not using poetic language here, right? And this is this is historical narrative. Matthew is, and Jesus is in the middle of teaching. So, how do we know he's using hyperbole here? How do we know that? There you go. It's common sense. You pluck out, if you're lusting with one eye and you pluck it out, can't, can't you still lust with the other eye? If you're getting drunk with one hand, can't you still get drunk with the other hand? If you're go walking off to the Aerosmith concert with your one, with both feet, if you cut off one, can you still hop there? What do we see, Tracy? There's people on crutches, people on wheelchairs going right into the concert. Right. And we see it every concert we go to. People in wheelchairs, people with uh, oxygen tanks. You know, they're walking to these things to to be involved in this sin, and these people who are leading them to sin, and so that doesn't stop you from sinning. And that is the whole point Jesus is making here. That's right. Yeah, it's crazy. That's right, and we see that in Romans chapter six. Uh, that your your body is an instrument that can be used for righteousness or unrighteousness. Just just dirt. Dirt cannot be sinful in and of itself. Dirt can be used in a sinful way. You know when when I was uh, how old was I? About eight years old. I was living in North Carolina at the time, um, and it was really bad snow that year. And um, me and my friends would have snowball fights and. I wasn't. I didn't really know people that well, really, on my block just yet. So they kind of would tease me and stuff like that. I didn't like that, and so uh, they were attacking me with snowballs, and, and so I took 
uh, a rock, which is made out of dirt, put it in a snowball, and threw it at someone's head. So I, that rock was not sinful in itself, was it? But I used it for sinful things, didn't I? For vengeance, for anger, for hatred in my heart, to display it uh, in such a way. And he had, he started bleeding on his head and everything, you know. Um, so dirt in itself is not sinful, but it can be used in a sinful way. We've talked about knives. You know, I can use a knife to cut off to make up tomatoes and carrots and make a good healthy salad and cut romaine lettuce, and or I can use it to stab someone, right? Yeah, it's, it's not a good use of it. Um, and so we see that it's inanimate, it's amoral. Dirt is amoral, and we're made out of dirt. We're made out of the, the, the dirt of the dust of the earth, just like Adam was. All right, so. Um, not the Bible is not always literal, um, and as Brother Sean said, doing cutting your hand off, your, your foot off, plucking out your eye does not stop you from sinning. But what happens if you don't take the drastic measures needed to stop the sin? You go to hellfire. You're going to end up in hellfire. Do children have guardian angels? No. Oh, Verse is that. Matthew 18 and verse 10 says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now what function they serve exactly? I mean, they're they walking around with them everywhere they go. I have no idea. But we do know that, that these little ones who believe in him, who he's referring to here, they do have an angel. They each have an angel. And we do know from Hebrews that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who are who are uh, who have salvation I'll just read that verse real quick in Hebrews Hebrews chapter let's see chapter 1 and verse 14 talking about angels are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation and so angels may minister to you and you don't even know it. They may protect you and you don't even know it. I, I, I can only imagine when I, when I get to the kingdom of heaven, if the Lord reveals all the ways he helped me, I did not, I was not aware of it, did not know about it. You know, all the times I could have been killed. All the times that someone really wanted to hurt me and he put a stop to it. All the times before I became a, a saint of God and I was still a sinner that he prevented bad things from happening to me in order to preserve me because of what he saw was going to come in the future for me. Um, when I look back on my sin, uh, I, sh- I shouldn't be here right now. There's people who've done a lot less than I have who, who didn't make it uh, to my age and to where I am right now. What are the three steps for co- confronting a Christian who has sinned against you? Yeah, that's the first step. If they don't repent, second step is what? Two, two, two or three witnesses, yeah. That's the third, second step. What's the third step? Bring them before the church. Okay. And if they don't repent after the third step, what do you do? Treat them like a heathen and a tax collector. Yeah. You treat them as if they're not a Christian. Yeah. And um, from that point on, you're to you know, bring them back to the situation. They need to repent. They need to come... Yeah, so definitely should be some shame involved on their part. If they don't feel shame, there's something desperately wrong with them. And uh, shame's a good thing. If it, 
That's First Corinthians five, I think, or Second Corinthians five, where it talks about the one who was being sexually immoral with his father's wife, and he said, "Turn him over to Satan, that his flesh might be destroyed and might be saved on the day of salvation." That was interesting. That was like an immediate thing. He just told him to do that right away. It wasn't like one, two. Well, we don't know what steps were taken before that. There could have been steps taken before that, but I mean, that's that's just so obvious, and you're they're proud about it, you know. So, yeah, yeah, and I can't imagine the Apostle Paul would step outside of his own teachings. I mean, you see it in Titus, and then Titus as well. First or second admonition to reject a, a heretic. So. Okay, so we see we see uh, the three steps there. What, what is when, when Jesus says about bounding and loosing here? What what does that mean? Does that mean like you you go to a house and you bind demons away from it, and you and you you go to a city and you loose loose things on it? And I mean, is that what it means when, it, when he talks about binding and loosing here? What does it mean by that? It means uh, living a holy life. Okay. Uh, in heaven, uh, everyone's holy, so uh, you want to bind sin, mm-hmm. uh, bind. Uh, Evil thoughts keep them captive to the submission of Christ Jesus, okay. and you want to loose uh, the preaching of the gospel. So I believe it's living a holy life is binding and loosing things. Okay. Well, the context here is, is church discipline. Let me read verse eighteen to you. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Mm. So what, what is what is he referring to here? Is he, I mean, is it talking about, uh, you know, them being able to forgive people of their sins and having the ability to do that? Is it like this kind of confession boot type thing we see in the Roman Catholic Church? You come there and he says, okay, you're forgiven, go do these penances and you'll be good to go. What, what is he What is he talking about when he says binding and loosing here? You said the, and I can't remember all the Greek, but I remember the Greek from earlier from Matthew 16. It has to do with basically it's already happened and they're declaring it. That's I mean, right. Is it the same thing in that area? Yes, know. it's the same thing. Matthew, you're talking about the Peter and the Pope Peter thing? Yep, Peter. same thing. Same situation. In the Greek, what it's literally saying here is that it's already been loosed in heaven, and you're claiming it to be loosed. It's already been bound in heaven. You're, you're just simply declaring it. So if I come to someone and say, you need to repent of this, and they say, no, I'm not going to repent, and they go through the three steps, and they don't repent, I'm simply declaring what God has already said, that they are rejected. God has said, after the third admonition, they are to be rejected, and you are to agree with God about that and say, you're bound. You're bound in your sin still, and right now, as of this moment, you're bound for hell because you have not repented. If someone repents, you're loosed. You're forgiven. You're simply declaring what God has already said about them. You know, when I come and preach the gospel to somebody, this is a more a general context now. If I preach the gospel to somebody and they repent, they believe, they get baptized, I say, you're saved. God has cleansed you. He's forgiven you of your sins because you repented and have believed. I'm simply saying what heaven has already said. What I'm acknowledging, I'm saying you're loosed from your sins. I'm declaring what heaven has already declared because it rejoices over the sinner who repents. Now, if someone stays in their sins, listen, you're going to go to hell. If you stay a fornicator, if you stay a drunkard, you are going to go to hell. I'm binding them. You're going to hell. And I'm simply declaring what God, what the word of God has already said about them. And that is true binding and loosing. Agreeing with God about a certain person concerning their condition, you're agreeing with God about them. That's all you're doing. And so that's why you see this right after Matthew 18, right after this um, uh, this situation of the the three steps, because that is what he said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. Now, I don't think that's referring to the normal way people use it of, you know, if we two or three people together and Jesus will be in our midst. It's referring to them agreeing upon something concerning church discipline. 
Now, I do believe that if I'm by myself in my prayer closet, that God is there in my midst. I believe that. So this can't be talking about that in the context. Warren is talking about the two or three who've confronted these people and said, you're in sin, and they refuse to do it. They refuse to repent. Does everyone understand what that's talking about? Yeah. If I can ask, uh, so if I'm trying to explain this to someone, it, is it due to some mistranslation in the text? Or like the reason I'm saying that is because when I take 18 together with 19, where it says, again, I say to you that two of you agree on earth, so this is step one, concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So it suggests a, a precedence of the agreement of the brothers together and then God uh, doing that for them. And it, it, it just grammatically in English here in the possession, that's what it suggests to me. So that is it, in, in order to explain it the way you're saying, which would be the other way around, mm -hmm. I would have to present some sort of proof like, that the text, the translation is not... Like, like yeah, it's, it's difficult in the grammar. Um, right. You know, I, I don't remember everything... Mm -hmm. That I read. This is just a kind of like a review. So I, as I read it here, I mean, yeah. Seems yeah, I understand. First, right. I understand. Yeah, and in the grammar in the Greek, uh, like I said, basically what it's saying is that you're declaring something that's already happening. You're agreeing with heaven about it. You're not saying something and then God says, "Okay, I'm going to do it now." It's you agreeing with God about what you're supposed to do and what that person's condition is before God. So it's not as if I'm declaring someone saved and God says, "Okay, I'm going to save them now." Then if I'm declaring someone as as forgiven of their sins, then God says, okay, now sure, I can yeah. forgive them. Not as if you have power or authority yeah. in heaven in that sense. Uh, but that's the way people will try to use it. I'm simply saying that in the grammar and the Greek, it's saying the exact opposite. And so 19 is then a separate uh, portion of that? Uh, because 19 says it will be done for them mm -hmm. by my Father in heaven. So I'm going to suggest that, that God is granting by his grace something to which uh, some Christians have agreed that they desire um, Obviously, it's not something that needs to be loosed, which is already loosed. I mean, as far as a lot of people talking about things that need to be loosed, uh, it seems contradictory as well when people say, well, we need to loosen the blessing. Well, if God is willing to bless, we need to loosen it because it's not caged in in the first place. Uh, but, you know, so this is something that they're agreeing about, apparently, because it will be done for them. Mm -hmm. So they're agreeing about it and by my Father in heaven. So the Father's blessing is granting something that these Christians have put their Right, that's what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the whole thing as a whole. Verse 18, 19. And also back in Matthew 16 uh, and 19, it says the same thing. Same kind of situation there. Yeah. Okay, does anyone, everyone understand uh, what that means for bounding and loosing there? In verses 18 and 19. Okay. Okay, how often should you forgive your brother? <laughs> 490, right? 490, 70 times 7. Yeah, get the 491, you're out of luck. And, and if you don't forgive your brother of his sins, what will happen to you? I thought that was work salvation. Isn't that work salvation? So God's requiring you to do something in order for you to be forgiven? Hmm. Sound like conditions to me. Okay, so so that's what Jesus says, and he said it back in Matthew 6, too. So he says this two separate times in the Bible. 
the same thing. If you don't forgive your brother of his sins, God will not forgive you of your sins. And we look at this parable of the unmerciful servant. We saw, uh, you know, a picture of the way God works when He forgives someone. Uh, what what does forgiveness mean? Okay. Not hold, not holding it against them any longer. Right. Now we're saying this morning uh, about this the sea of, of forgetfulness. Does does God have a failure in His memory once you become a Christian? So that, that's that's just metaphoric right there. When we, when we sing about that, it's just metaphorical. We're not really saying that suggesting that Jesus for, that God forgets something. I mean, if He did, you'd be more omniscient than He is in certain areas. You would know about yours. I know about my past sins. If I sat down and thought about it, I could know about all of them if I wanted to. Of course, I try not to think about him at all. Uh, but um, so, in this situation here, did, did this this king did he forget about the person's sins? Do, do you remember how how many years of wages ten thousand talents was? Do you have any idea? Remember what that was? A lifetime. Okay, that's one. No, not fifteen years. Fifteen thousand years worth of wages. 15,000 years, it's 333 lifetimes, uh, if you, if you take into, uh, 330, yeah, 333 lifetimes if you give 45 years of work per life. And so it's 15,000 years worth of wages, 10,000 talents. So th- this is, this is a, a wage that he literally could never pay back. And, and, that, and that's what every sinner must realize, that they, they can't repay God. They can't repay God. There's nothing they could ever do to repay God. They're in the same situation as this unmerciful servant. They have 10,000 talents to pay, and they can't pay it back. They can't pay it back. All they can do is fling themselves upon the mercy of the one they owe to. Uh, but then a servant comes along, and it's it's literally 100 denarius, like 100 days' worth of wages. And so it's less than a whole, it's like a third of a year, and he wouldn't forgive him of those things. And so uh, can God reinstate punishment for sins that were once forgiven? Yes, yes he can. He doesn't forget about those things. He can still reinstate them. Um, so God literally does not, doesn't literally forget sins. He just treats you as if you had never done them. He doesn't hold them against you any longer. He puts your punishment aside. Puts your punishment aside. And the condition is that you persevere to the end in holiness in order for you to be saved. Okay, so that's where we're going to start, stop the, uh, review for the, today. Next week we'll either do four or five chapters, and then we get that, we'll do four, four or five chapters until we get to the end. And then after that, there'll be a test. And then after that, um, and then we're talking about Revelation, and we're building up your anticipation of it. And, but before we get into Revelation, uh, me and Brother Kevin have been praying about this. We want to do something called a Foundations series, okay? Uh, where there's going to be 12 foundations for the new Christian, for the new disciple in Christ. And so when we, after we do this, these teachings through it, um, we're hopefully going to put them on DVD and have them available. And hopefully as the church as a whole, we'll we'll come together to do the printing of this. So when we have a new believer, whether they're far or near, we can give this to them or give them a good foundation to build upon concerning their future, concerning good doctrine. And it'll be stuff like what the Bible is, how you should understand and and read the Bible. There'll be stuff on the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There'll be stuff on on salvation, the doctrine of soteriology. Uh, There'll be stuff on the family. Okay, stuff on ecclesiology, the church, the doctrine of the church. And so there'll be different uh, topics, and me and Brother Kevin are already de- deciding which one of us are going to teach which topics. I think he's going to teach four, and I'm going to teach eight of them. And we'll kind of go, and whoever's teaching a certain topic will stay on the topic. It may take more than one teaching. 
But they'll stay on that topic until they're done. Then the next person will go to the next topic. And we'll do it until we're done. Then after that, Lord willing, I will teach on Revelation. Uh, so it's not a matter of me having a lack, lack of being prepared. It's a matter of God going in a different direction for us. And as we see new people coming to the faith, coming here, people who can't come here, different things like that happening, we want to have a way to give them a solid foundation to build upon going forth from here. Because I know when I was a new believer, I didn't have that. You know, and I was kind of tossed to and fro a little bit when I was a new believer. And so I don't want other people to go through that. <clears throat> and let's face it, we're the, the church as a whole, church as a whole is apostate. And, I, you know, people ask, is there a church you can recommend here or here or here? And I, no, no and no. And so it's just very difficult. And if you can give a, a young believer a good, solid foundation on basic doctrines, you can give them that, then they can grow from there. They, they can start to understand the Bible for themselves and study it for themselves and, and be okay, at least, you know, in a basic way, they'll be okay. They won't be led astray by the doctors of demons. And, you know, in these last days, you know, lawlessness is going to abound and false teaching and false teachers are going to abound, so we need to help them in any way we can. And so this is not something we're going to be selling, something we're going to be offering people for free as we... You know, as we come together to church, we can we can afford to put this stuff together. I don't know how many DVDs are going to be in the whole set, but we put the stuff together in the most economic way to offer to people uh, from Refining Fire and Fellowship to them, as they can can learn from it, and and hopefully after they learn from it, they can pass on to someone else for free. You know, and and of course the videos will be on the on the website as well. So. Since you're just now bringing this up, I could also put that on the Roku channel as well. Yeah. Yeah, we want to get out there as best uh, as much as possible. So, so me, me and Brother Kevin are both, you know, studying up for it even now, you know, as we prepare for it. And uh, someone's going to be stretching for, you know, for him and for me as we teach on these subjects. And someone's going to be reviewing and over and looking at and adding to things we've already taught before. And so, just be in prayer for us about that. You know, he doesn't doing the reviews now. I'm, I'm preparing myself for for teaching through these things. And so this is going to be a really important thing for us moving forward. And, uh, you know, people if people join us, whether it's from, from close by or from far away, um, they're going to need a good foundation. And, uh, you know, they can't go backwards and go with everything we've taught. They can go on YouTube, stuff like that. But it's hard to give them... Because some of the stuff we've taught through, this basic stuff has been dispersed throughout many different teachings. It's not like a topical thing we've done that, that, that subject. And so those things need to be done. And so if you can be in prayer for both of us about that. And I think Brother Kevin will be going first on January 20th. That'll be the first one. I think he's going to teach on the Godhead first. That's probably the first thing we should be teaching on. So, Okay, any, any questions about today, about the review today, or about anything that's coming up in the future? Well, if you go to my Gospel According to Matthew playlist on my channel, you go to Matthew 14, which is the halfway point, and you'll see the review for Matthew 7, 1 through 7 and Matthew 8 through 14 right after that. Okay, so you'll see that right at the midway point. Um, so it should be right there. It should be pretty easy to find. Yeah. Okay, anybody else?